welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzee. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy, And in today's episode, I am really excited and honored to be interviewing Professor Lorimer Mosley. On a personal note, he has made a huge difference in my life and in my journey with pain, and I'm grateful for him and the research that he does. If you are not familiar with Professor Mosley, he is a Bradley Distinguished Professor at the University of South Australia. He is a pain scientist, clinician, and educator. He has made seminal contributions to how we understand pain and why it sometimes persists and has developed treatments that are now considered frontline interventions in clinical guidelines internationally. He has offered 370 research articles and seven books. His contributions have been recognized by government or professional societies in 13 countries. In 2020, he was made an Officer of the Order of Australia for Distinguished Contributions to Humanity at Large in the fields of pain science and pain medicine, science communication, pain education, and physiotherapy. He lives and works on Cornet Country in Adelaide, Australia. And this is a great episode. No edits here. We are playing it straight through because I think editing it at all would take away from a really great conversation around where the pain science research is now and what's coming up in the future. And of course, they also have uh, Neu Group has the master classes with Lorimer and friends. Uh, So be sure to uh, wait to the end where we talk about that and how you can sign up for that because it sounds like it's going to be amazing again another year. So a huge thanks to Professor Lorimer Mosley for coming on the podcast and giving his time to, for this great conversation. Everyone enjoy today's episode. Hi, Lorimer. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you back on. G'day. Thanks for having me. And so today we've got a lot to cover because we are going to be talking about some of your current projects, new developments uh, that maybe happened since 2021, where you had well over 30 publications. Uh, So you had a very, very busy year, I would say. Um, But as we go, as we kind of go through and talk about some of the things that you're working on, um, I just want you to uh, let me know if there's anything that you're like, whoa, hey, I can't talk about that. Or if, if there is sure. reason to be a little vague because things might be ongoing trials and things like that. So we'll definitely keep that in mind. Um, sure. Now, let's so you've had a lot of uh, publications over the last year. What are some current projects or uh, discoveries or developments that really stuck out for you in uh, your most recent research? Ah, uh, nice question. Um, I mean, one of the things about being a, a scientist in a clinical field is that you, it's not often that you get a revolutionary discovery. Uh, it's quite unusual. So um, well, I, I think the things that I'm most excited about are not, not so, so much particular papers, although there, there are some really exciting findings. There's one that's not published yet, but will will be out in the next couple of months that I'm particularly excited about. And 
I can allude to that. Um, but I think it's sort of like these, these streams of research in which I'm involved that are turning me on a bit at the moment. And one of those is a continuation of the whole explain pain thing. Um, but over the last sort of four or five years, uh, we have discovered, we've looked really closely at, uh, at the, the outcomes of clinical practice in where people are delivering great educative interactions. And, uh, and I've had a fair degree of, of influence over them. So I feel really confident that, okay, they're, they're supposedly doing it well. And uh, those data from a big cohort of people suggest that in about half of the people with chronic pain that they see, uh, they have this shift in understanding of the problem that's a real flip uh, and, it, and it's in a predictable way, you know, shifting towards really deep in your belly, con conceptualising pain as a protective feeling that's being produced for a reason and we need to work out what that reason is and uh, it will almost, well, it will certainly not be a single reason. There'll be all these little contributors. So a real flip in understanding uh, and, and I guess understanding that as pain persists, your system becomes overprotective and and really embracing that as a reality. And that's a really hard thing to do. But those, those half of the people who do it have great outcomes a year later. And that's, a, for me, that's a really exciting discovery. The half of the people who don't, don't have great outcomes. So for me, again, that's a really exciting discovery. The problem is that we're only winning in half the people. You know, we're only nailing it in half the people and the intervention's good across, seems to be good across everyone. So um, clearly our markers of what's good intervention are not accurate. So my gut feeling about that was not accurate. So we've been looking deeply at how, how can we expand that group from half to bigger and, and unexpectedly for me, doubling down on the, on the criticality of learning so i've been learning a lot about learning and that's been infiltrating our research uh, and infiltrating uh, the, the whole way we go about um, helping people with chronic pain or at risk of chronic pain um, so i'm really excited about that and uh, we're seeing in, in scientists talk about seeing a signal uh, amongst the noise and in chronic pain, there's just so much noise, right? Because chronic pain is this truly, in my view, truly biopsycho, big S and, and small s social thing. Uh, and if we can intervene and see a signal in that group, that's a really exciting development. Um, and uh, I, I'm more excited than I've than I was maybe seven or eight years ago about the potential power of, of new and better ways to get people to give people understanding. Uh, and I started banging on about this in conferences and stuff maybe three or four years ago. And I have this slide that that is intentionally slightly provocative, particularly to the physical therapy world um, and that sort of pain science education world. Uh, I think in, in the US, the brand name that's popular is pain neuroscience education. Mm -hmm. 
P&E. Mm-hmm. Um, these are all brand names, right? P&E, Explain Pain is a brand name. So I like to avoid the brand names, so I call it sort of pain science education or modern pain education. And it's, yeah, so this slide is meant to be slightly provocative um, in saying, has education become the objective instead of learning being the objective? And I think for me, education became the objective and that was a mistake that, that I made. And I think my research made that mistake and my clinical practice probably made that mistake. Uh, and my own outcomes um, over the last 10 years, and I, get, I keep really tight audit data, I can see the benefit of my own development as a, as a clinician educator and probably as a human uh, on outcomes. So I'm excited about that for sure. Uh, and I could give a little, uh, a little teaser to the paper that we expect to, to come out in the next couple of months in a big journal near you, uh, which looks at a, a clinical trial of chronic back pain where we have done two things that I think are really unusual for our field. One is we've tested, uh, I think, a new complex intervention. Um, and it's made up of less new interventions, but they're all sort of put together into a, a, a package, if you like. And the other thing that was different that we did that, that I, yeah, yeah, I think I'm really proud of the team led by James McCauley, um, he's, he's the senior author on it, and uh, Ben Wand and I were important in sort of formulating the, the treatment, but Ben's been really critical. But we were all very keen to make the control group the best placebo intervention we could. So we put a lot of effort into credible brain-targeted treatments, matching the educative component uh, and testing whether people had different expectations or perceived credibility or uh, beliefs about the act, whether they were in the active treatment or not. So from my perspective, it's a very tight trial. And James and I were fully expecting that we would not see a signal in this, but we would be interested in secondary analyses, which tell us uh, mediating effects, like what, even though there wasn't an overall effect about what worked, uh, what, what might have been helpful. So that's what we were expecting. But in, in fact, we saw a clinically important signal. And that's very unusual in back pain trials. Uh, it's, you know, if you, if you have a control group where you've got a waiting list or usual care, um, or you've got, there's been a couple of trials published lately, or you've got uh, open label saline injections. You know, these treatments that will have some sort of effect, but they're, they're no match, right? So you're not really asking, are the particulars about this treatment important? All of those treatments will show a signal. They, all, they always do. They show exactly the same sort of signal. I've done those at randomized controlled trials. Uh, uh, so that's one thing. You can design a trial in a way that you'll show a signal, uh, but it's a bit meaningless to us as real-world clinicians. Mm-hmm. Or you can design a trial that we would call an explanatory trial that says, okay, we've kept all of these things the same in the two groups, and the things that we kept the same were as much of that non-specific therapeutic alliance, engagement, credibility, expectation, which, which I think is a big part of the whole pain science education thing. Um, so I do think we have to monitor that. Um, 
You might hear my dog in the other room. Quite um, all right. We're, we're pet this, friendly around here. What's exciting about that is that it means there's some sort of delivery being left at my front door. <laughs> yeah, it could be wine. I think it might be this new Pinot that I discovered. Even better. Um, yeah. So anyway, so that will be coming out. I can't say anything more about that, but, it, uh, but it's a really exciting development. Uh, and we've got, we've got a few trials that are, are testing versions of these sorts of things for, for different conditions um, that are going at the moment. And the way we're constructing the education component and integrating it with the movement and loading and anti-inflammatory component. So you've got this three-pronged approach. Really exciting for me as I, you know, I've been doing this for quite a while, it feels like. Um, I still feel like a kid, but, uh, you know, I have been researching for a while and this is a really exciting time, I reckon, in the chronic pain world because I, th I think we're starting to chug forward again. I feel like as a field we've stalled a bit, but chugging forward. Anyway, that's one thing. And then, then on the other, other side, uh, uh, research streams, um, one of our team called Dr. Emma Karen is doing really difficult and really important work really well um, investigating the influence of social determinants of health on chronic pain outcomes. Uh, first focusing on low back pain. Um, and she's published a couple of uh, systematic reviews uh, and a, a mixed method study on that that is pretty intimidating uh, for those of us trying to move the, the outcomes in a positive direction because, as we were talking about before, Karen, the, the social determinants for health are very powerful and they're powerful in back, in back pain and pain outcomes. They're really hard to shift. You know, they're very hard to do much about. So... Uh, and our field, the pain field, musculoskeletal pain, the, the, the sort of arthritis field has, all, has engaged with this way better than, than the non-arthritis musculoskeletal pain, pelvic pain, fibro fields. We, you know, it's remarkable how little attention it, it gets, the big S social. And when we talk about the biopsychosocial model, we nearly always conceptualise that as a small less social and the people around you social which is important, but we haven't really integrated the biggest social, you know, the, the world in which you live and your access to healthcare and literacy and uh, poverty and yeah, all that sort of stuff. Absolutely. And I think uh, you kind of hit the nail on the head as clinicians, oftentimes when we talk about the biopsychosocial, we think of the socials, what's your support system at home? Um, mm. You know, do you have you know, can you get to, can you get to therapy? Do you have access to therapy? But what we're not asking is, do you have access to other medical care if you need it? Do you have access to fresh yeah. foods and vegetables, which we know can play a part in, let's say, inflammatory responses in the body? Do you have access to um, a pharmacy? Do you have access? I mean, all of these things make a huge difference, you know, or do you, is your social part of that biopsychosocial, are you working three jobs and raising children and not having time to fit some of this stuff in, right? So yeah, that, that social part becomes a really big S for a lot of people. Um, certainly in the United States, like I said before, one of the biggest determinants of health 
of your health in the United States is your zip code. Yeah, it's remarkable. So social determinants of health is is high priority. And I think maybe people shy away from it because it can be so overwhelming. So I don't know what you guys are finding research wise, if there are ways and how you can address that. Oh, it's it's overwhelming for sure. Uh, and I, I totally understand why there is a reluctance to go there. And there, there are also, I think there's very complex ethical considerations about going there. Like we, we've, we've been planning a, a study in the northern suburbs of Adelaide where I live, um, which is an area uh, that's really different to, the, say, the inner suburbs of Adelaide with respect to all those sort of predictable social determinants. Um, but one question that we've had to look in the mirror about is if, if we develop this, so we're working on developing a screening tool, um, if we start to identify people that have uh, significant unmet social needs and we can't do anything about it, is that an, is that an ethically defendable position? You know, we, we're able to say to people, okay, we know what the problem is, you need this and you can't have it because we've got no mechanism of, of meeting that need. So it's quite a challenging area to move into because if you, if you imagine the, the understanding and, and overcoming persisting pain is a very slow step-by-step journey. And now we really have to imagine that instead of going in a straight line, we're almost going in a circle and we're making slow step-by-steps of the entire circumference of the circle you know and you move a little bit then you you have to stop and move a little bit more somewhere else Uh, otherwise you're going to break and the the people who suffer when you break will be the same people you know the the more vulnerable Mm -hmm. people so it's a really challenging field and yeah I can't I'm excited to be getting dragged along by Emma and her colleagues on on this um, but I'm also, uh, you know, so impressed with how, uh, how robust the approach is uh, uh, to it. So, you know, there's a couple of, of her papers out already and more, more coming, and I think they'll be really influential in the field uh, because no one, or there are people, there are, there are people who are engaging in this, but very few people are, thinking to themselves, I'll, I'll take on that challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very, so very, exciting. very difficult. It's, it's relevant to, it's really relevant, or, or I guess my interest in it was sparked by our work with Pain Revolution, which is an outreach uh, project program for rural areas. Uh, and, you know, it sounds like it's similar in the US, but there's, there's areas in Australia, not far from big cities, what we would call a big city of Adelaide, a million people. Um, there's areas two hours drive from Adelaide that cannot get a GP or a physio or a psychologist or an occupational therapist uh, to work there. Uh, and they've got, you know, one in four of them have a persisting pain problem that affects their life. Uh, there's no, you know, what do we do? What do we do about that? Um, so pain revolution is is really trying to ultimately build workforce capacity um, in giving people health professionals of some description. We don't care what description, 
Uh, in fact, we are we're, we're looking for money to trial non-healthcare professional being coached and becoming a rural coach. Um, but the idea of that is that if people, you know, we know, I think, from other areas of, of the pain field that if, if a healthcare professional of any persuasion understands deeply contemporary pain science and management and takes a defendable scientific and now evidence-based approach, then outcomes can be better for sure and outcomes will be promoted by engaging in, in care locally. At the moment, the only model we've got is a fly-in, fly-out model, which is where you know the health professionals go from the city and spend a day in the country and come back a month later, in, in my view, of very limited benefit. Uh, or we've got a FOFI model where the patients, the consumers, come down to the city. And in many cases, that's a 8, 10, 12-hour drive get an assessment, you know, they, they, there's, no, there's no way of treating these people mm -hmm. or, or providing effective care for these people. So, yeah. Yeah, and anyway, I, you blah, know. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> you know, it, this this conversation uh, about this kind of rural outreach and, and maybe training someone who's not in the medical field uh, reminded me of a documentary that I saw Oh gosh, I can't remember the name of it. If I can, everyone, I'll put it in the show notes. I can't remember it right now, but it was on, it was more psychology based um, around loss and trauma. And there was a woman in Africa who was not, uh, not a psychologist. She was not trained, but she, she, I think she was uh, trained in some basic coaching skills, but she lived in the community and people there were more likely to go to her because she understood the community, she was part of the community and they had really good outcomes. So I'm wondering even if training someone who is not a medical professional, but if it's possible to train them even in, you know, you don't have to be there in person, but would that person, because they're part of this rural community, maybe have better results than someone just flying in for the month and flying out, where you have someone who knows the community, understands the struggles, and maybe has known some of these people their whole lives. You know, we talk about therapeutic alliance and trust and mm. beliefs. So would people there more likely believe someone who's part of their community than someone who's doing a fly in, fly out? I don't know. It just reminded yeah. me of that documentary. Yeah, totally get that. And, and I guess we are, we're really embracing that in, in one aspect with Pain Revolution because we're training rurally-based health professionals. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the impetus. You know, they're connected to their communities and their communities are, are really well-connected, more so than certainly in Australia in the cities. You know, you, the physio, if there is a physio, will be on the sideline at the netball game or uh, the football game uh, with the consumer. You know, mm -hmm. these, are, these people's normal lives and accessibility and uh, those things that I think reduce the power differentials that, that contaminate a lot of healthcare interactions. Uh, what was it, part of our drive to drive pain revolution rurally to, to tap into this already. And, you know, the, the vision that we state of pain revolution is that all Australians, and I think we're going to change that to all people, uh, will have the skills, the knowledge and access to local resources to prevent and overcome persistent pain. And that's the real emphasis that we embed 
the knowledge and the skills locally. Uh, and, you know, that's, you know, I've, I've been talking for 10, 10 years about uh, recovered consumers being coaches, not healthcare professional, but recovered consumers because they have all this knowledge and expertise that no one else can have, right? Mm -hmm. A very, uh, a very deep are, understanding of pain. Absolutely, yeah. And pain and, and not, not only the lived experience of pain, but the lived experience of recovery. And I, I think that's a untapped massive resource. Mm -hmm. um, but there are significant regulatory medical legal barriers to us just pushing forward on that, that we're still negotiating. So mm -hmm. that's, yeah, that's been at least a decade mm -hmm. from my perspective. But pain rev is, is so exciting. It's, it's really cool. Like we are doing it on a shoestring. And I think we now, at the end of this year, we will have, uh, I think we'll have about 35 local pain collectives. So these are networks of healthcare professionals around geographical regions that, um, get together, learn more about how pain works and the best ways of treating it, collectively problem solve. Pain Rev feeds them curricula, but really it's a collective problem solving facilitated group. And yeah, I think that Pain Rev was responsible for delivering around about, around about 400 community outreach sessions Amazing. across Australia in the middle of COVID. I was going to ask, how has COVID affected uh, what Pain Revolution has been able to do, let's say, last year, uh, as opposed to previous years? Yeah, it's, well, it's had its impacts um, for sure. Um, and it depends where you live in Australia. So two of our states uh, have had longer period of, of living in a COVID world, I guess. Uh, and in those places, there's, there's been no face-to-face -face stuff. Mm -hmm. um, our 2021 outreach tour that we do, so we run this circus that gets a lot of attention, raises a fair bit of money on our level of what a fair bit of money is. You know, it's not, in the commercial sector, it would be like someone's bonus for the week, but... Uh, in our sector, it, it keeps us alive. Um, and we go from town to town and we run these public outreach and health professional outreach events. And we're all dressed up in Lycra and we ride our bikes and it's all this cool thing. Uh, and that's part of a wider program with, with two other projects that dovetail into that uh, dedicated to the region. And we didn't run that in 2021 um, and we won't run that in 2022. And that's a big hit for mm -hmm. us because it's our main fundraising um, avenue. So that's that's a real challenge. Some states in Australia uh, have had basically no COVID, um, uh, and one state still basically has no COVID. Western Australia, they they are they are closed to the rest of Australia and the world, uh, and I think they're aiming to reopen in February. Tasmania has recently reopened and they're starting to get cases. But now where, where I live, we are, we are at the beginning of our, our wall of Omicron. Mm -hmm. um, and we really don't know what this year looks like. So we don't have the experience that a lot of places do. Um, and we're very grateful 
for that, but we also <laughs> clearly like deer in the headlights at the moment. Yeah. Um, and our, our federal government's bungling everything. Our rules are changing all the time. We And, you know, we're not as prepared as you would expect us to be having had 18 months notice. So mm-hmm. that will impact pain revolution for sure. Uh but we're a really small outfit. We have, I think we have 1.5 full-time equivalent staff delivering hundreds of programs and um, or events and we're very resilient and, yeah, we'll... Yeah, we'll, you'll we'll get, get it through. done. And, and if yeah. people want more information, they can go to painrevolution.org, correct? Correct. Yes. Correct. So painrevolution.org, if you want more information about what pain revolution is doing and maybe how you can help or contribute. Um, if you, so if you see oh. fit, if it, if it uh, aligns with what you believe in, then uh, I suggest <laughs> go for it because it is, um, uh, a very worthy cause for sure. Um, and now it's kind of switching gears a little bit, something that, uh, we were speaking about sort of before we, uh, hit the record button here. Um, and it's, uh, a concept that I had to kind of look up a little bit before uh, our talking here. And it's that concept of uh, cognitive flexibility. I think it's interesting. I think it's worth talking about. So um, I will hand the mic over to you to sort of talk a little bit more about what that is and, and how does cognitive flexibility fit in with people living with pain and maybe with practitioners treating those living with pain. Yeah, well, thanks. Um, and again, yeah, I, I feel like I don't actually, um, I don't actually do much of the good work. It feels a little bit like because this work is has been done by Caitlin Howlett, who's a PhD student um, about to to finish and has a background in psychology. We embarked on a new direction probably three years ago uh, with with a, a really sensible prediction, I think, that um, a possible contributor to not recovering after an acute episode of pain uh, based on, if people are familiar with Bayesian or other predictive processing models, uh, based on the idea that uh, the outputs that we generate are predictions and the system is influencing itself according to predictions, uh, then we need to update the internal models of things in order to resolve. So if I was to cover that really quickly, um, if we if we said when you bend over and you don't have pain, uh, that what, what could be happening there is that your brain predicts that this will be safe. Your brain pr- produces a feeling that's consistent with that. Uh, and then let's say you tweak uh, the annulus of a intervertebral disc or something, you get, nociceptive data that are that are within the the sensory load uh, and i like to say within the uh, the symphony of data this extraordinarily complex beautifully evolved system of of information about what's happening in the tissues we get data that says this is not what i predicted you know the the evaluator says it's not what i predicted uh, so we update the internal model to say the back is vulnerable in some way, let's say. And then the new prediction is, well, let's make pain 
and let's influence the system differently. And then if we go in the other direction, and every time you bend over, you get this nociceptive data within the symphony, uh, and then one day you don't. One day you bend over and, and you don't get that, and now the theory is the system detects that error. Says, hang on, that's not what I predicted. So it updates the internal model to say the back is less vulnerable, and now your brain doesn't produce as much pain or produces no pain, and then you've recovered. Fantastic. So one potential barrier to recovery, according to that theory, is failure to update your internal model. <clears throat> and, and that should happen if, excuse me a moment, <clears throat> that should happen if you, if you don't detect the error. So for some reason, you don't, your system doesn't detect that the predicted data, the predicted data, which was nociceptive in part, hasn't been, hasn't eventuated, and therefore you don't update your internal models. So on the basis of that, we became quite interested in this broad field of, of flexibility, cognitive flexibility, which yeah, has been defined in many ways, but I guess the way that we were thinking about it was the, the ability of your system to uh, change its behaviour on when the task requirements or conditions change. Uh, so in the language of, of that sort of Bayesian idea and it's your ability to update your internal model of things. So we, we started digging around in this field, or Caitlin really started digging around in this field. And often in a PhD, you'll start with a systematic review of the literature uh, on a question that's most, most aligned with what our hypothesis would be driving. So, so Caitlin took on what we thought would be a reasonably straightforward job to review the literature in cognitive, mental and psychological flexibility. So they're, they're all phrases that are used often interchangeably, particularly cognitive and mental flexibility. Um, and with the question uh, that would help us determine which is the best way to assess this. What's the best way to assess flexibility? And there's two broad approaches to assessment. One is self-report questionnaires. And they have they were developed out of a line of research, starting with personality tests in the 1960s, um, and that's that's a sort of this long line of stuff. And uh, someone I can't remember who, but in the I think in the 60s or 70s, uh, proposed I don't think it was empirically based, but proposed that good communicators perform answer these some questions in a certain way and that researcher described them as cognitively flexible people and they were good communicators uh, and then that infiltrated the field and we eventually we got to this situation where we've got cognitive, cognitive flexibility scales things like that the cfs or uh, and there's a few of those completely independently from that uh, was the development of behavioral tests uh, and the people doing these studies somewhere in the 80s, uh, or maybe it was a bit later than that, called this cognitive flexibility. So we've got two independent lines joining at cognitive flexibility. And then that's then the, or the whole field just went nuts, cross-contaminating and all that. So Caitlin has now uh, published and one's just been accepted last week, uh, two systematic reviews that are massive 
and she had to contact authors for nearly every single one of these studies to get data, asking the question, how well do those two approaches to testing cognitive flexibility correlate? Because if they're testing the same thing, they should correlate quite well. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of those systematic reviews is in healthy people and one is in people with a diagnosis, so clinical groups. And uh, in both of those studies, there is absolutely no relationship between those two approaches. So you have two different tracks on how to assess cognitive flexibility and there is no correlation between them. None at all. And, and actually a lot of the tests, there's no reliability data for them. Um, now, there are some cognitive psychologists who won't be surprised at that finding, uh, and they're the informed ones who, who have been working in this field, I guess. But for people like Caitlin and I and the rest of the team on this project, um, where clinically it, it's such an attractive hypothesis, right? Like if, if people can't change their... So if people don't easily change their beliefs, explicit beliefs, their implicit beliefs about the vulnerability of their body, what pain means, you know, the, the targets of pain science education, uh, then, and we know those people who don't, who don't change some of those targets of pain science education don't do as well. We know, we know that. So it's such an attractive hypothesis that they, they might be less cognitively flexible. Uh, but the barrier we've hit is, so how do we find out? Because we don't actually know what any of these tests are actually. What are they actually testing? Yeah. Yeah. So, so the direction for that and of us for money haven't got it yet to do that is to devise a, a new way of assessing, uh, the ability to change your decisions when there is some sort of risk evaluation involved because I, I think for for pain I think we, we talk about the meaning of things being important for pain and, and I think one way to distill the meaning is about just a, a risk profile mm-hmm. that every nanosecond our system is evaluating risk and it's risk that determines our feelings and I would categorize pain as a feeling uh, but so you know, anxiety fear fatigue need to go to the toilet Mm-hmm. need to eat, thirst, all these things, uh, in my view, feelings generated on the appraisal of risk. And, and if we don't have any risk in an evaluation of, of ability to change your behaviour under changing circumstances, and I'm, even, I'm, I'm nervous to use the, the phrase cognitive flexibility now because I know that whoever hears that uh, there are three or four main ways that you understand that, and some of those would be totally different from mm-hmm. other ways. So I would prefer to say uh, if we keep assessing the ability to change your behaviour according to changed demands or environment um, without risk, then I think we might not capture what we need to capture for understanding a potential contribution to the development of chronic pain or the mm-hmm. poor recovery from initial pain. So, uh, so that, you know, that was one of those, you know, one of those PhDs where it's such an important discovery actually. And, and Caitlin's contribution to the field is very important. 
but it won't get the citation impact and the rah-rah because what the contribution says is, hang on, everyone, wait. You know, there are, there are whole journals dedicated to this. Mm-hmm. But what is it? What is it? We almost have to go back and start again and say, okay, let's get really clear on what we're talking about. Let's use these phrases. Anyway, so that, that's, you know, relevant to your very first question, what are you most excited about? I guess I'm, um, it's hard to be excited about clearly deflatory discoveries like that, but they're so important. They're really important. And they're harder to publish. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they should publish, in my view, they should publish top journal, in-your-face journal. Yeah, well, anyway. it's it's like, yes, it's sort of this deflated response, if you will, to to the systematic review, but it is important because it's important to use the right words. And to if you're going to label something, it should be what it says it's doing. Otherwise, mm. why are you doing these tests and, and why are you you know, labeling someone as very highly cognitive flexibility or low cognitive flexibility when you don't really know. And then, yeah, exactly. So how, how do you then, so then your treatment, I look at it from a clinician standpoint, how do you formulate a treatment plan around something that's, that's not accurate or unknown? Um, So I think it makes it really difficult, but it's, it just underlines the importance of this kind of research. Um, and yeah, and I I, think, I, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say I think that um, it yeah, Caitlin's research doesn't doesn't tell us that these tests are uninformative. Um, but what it does tell us is that we don't we don't know exactly what they what they mean. So that speaks to your point exactly, Karen. That that so what do we do about it? That's the, that's a the difficult thing because we don't actually understand them well enough. I think. Um, but can I put in a plug for a, yes. a research project of Caitlin's, her final project for a PhD that we desperately need participants for? Yeah. Because it's an online study. Okay. Uh, and, it's, and it's to do with this cognitive flexibility. And we need people without pain as well as people with pain. Well, that's a lot of people. It takes about it's basically everyone. <laughs> so anyone who has 20 minutes spare... Uh, it would be great if they just went and did yeah. Caitlin's experiment online. Uh, and maybe I could send you the link. Or yeah, something. Send me, send me the, yeah you send me the link. I'll put it in the show notes and I'll also put it out on social media um, so that people can, can take this online study. So if it's people with or without pain, that takes in quite a lot of people, like you said, it like really everyone. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I'm assuming she wants a, a robust number um we need lots yeah we need lots because we think the signal will be small amongst Mm -hmm. the noise so Mm -hmm. yeah but you know if people did it and then ask one of their family members or a mate yeah that'd be fantastic yeah i'd be happy to help i'll send you the link about that yeah definitely do that and as i was you know as you were talking about this cognitive flexibility or the ability of um to adapt your behavior and let's say cognitive strategies in response to a changing task or to a threat or something like that. It, it always reminds me of, um, this, 
experience that I had. So most people who listen to this know that I had a very long history with chronic pain. I think you're well aware of that as well, about mm-hmm. 10 years or so of neck pain, chronic neck pain. And um, it was, this was a couple of years after I could say I was recovered. You know, of course, there's times when you have flare ups and things like that, but largely recovered. And I was, I was at Disneyland with Sandy Hilton and Sarah Haig. And we had waited in this long line, like an hour to go on what I thought was like a jungle cruise, you know, this very (laughs) like get on a boat and cruise around the water kind of a thing. And we get up there and everywhere, once we get inside, plastered everywhere was big danger signs, you know, the yellow danger sign, the, the red X, if you have neck or back pain, you know, this, and I was like, <gasps> you know, so talk about a threat, right? So my normal behavior and like my hands were sweaty, my heart rate was up, my eyes were dilated. Wow. My normal response, I guess, would maybe show my inflexibility would have been to find the nearest exit and leave. Yeah. Yeah. Get out as fast as possible. Right. And so I think Sarah and luckily I was with two very um, incredible women who are very well-versed in pain science. And I think I am as well, but when it's you, you're, you're like yeah. a big, you know, a mashed potato, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. And Sandy and Sarah just looked at each other and looked at me and I was like almost shaking. And Sandy's like, okay, listen, it only tilts about 12 degrees and it stops and goes, you're in taxi cabs. They stop and go. You're fine. It, it's this much of a tilt. You'll be fine. And then Sarah's like, yeah. And the person in front of you is like six, you know, there's nothing over your shoulders. It's not that dangerous. And they kept playing down the danger. And so I did end up getting on it very, very nervous. And then I got off and I was fine. They were right. But then it allowed me to be flexible enough to then go on another ride after that. Whereas if I went with my original um, strategy, which would have been to leave, then I wouldn't have done anything else for the rest of the day. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that threat, if left to my own devices would have gotten the, I don't want to say gotten the better of me, but I would have reverted back to the behaviors I had during the, that sort of 10 years of living with pain. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I respect, I respect both mm-hmm. of those approaches right it it makes sense for an organism when you see credible evidence that this is a dangerous situation to take avertive action yeah makes total sense and i guess the i think about the flexibility thing was evident as as sandy and sarah are problem solving with you Mm -hmm. gathering more data uh, and and then your choice changed that's the stuff that seems consistent with, the, in quotation marks, flexibility. You know that right. um, in the face of new data. So the new data, you know, it, it could work both both ways. And I think there are some people with persisting pain problems where they behave the same way even in the presence of significant danger cues, mm. and that works against them because they you know they right. keep injuring, for example. Right. Right. Um, you know, it can work both ways. Uh, yeah, I think I think there's a rich there's there's a rich stream of of understanding in there somewhere for us to to uncover, um, but it does feel a little bit like that's going to require the the archaeologist among us 
to get out our, this is a metaphor, obviously, to, to get out our brushes and blowers and slowly uh, reveal what that stream of gold is mm-hmm. as distinct from the uh, the earth blasters obviously just want to revolutionise in a, you know, in a rapid way. And, and I fit more into the second category, you know, I'd, uh, I lose steam on the very slow, the, the finite slow layers. incremental discovery thing. And mm-hmm. I, I'm very pleased to be around researchers who are excellent at that. Yeah. Because I'm and, not so much. And I always, I always think about that. Uh, what did I think David Butler said they were, uh, what did he call them? Oh, I don't know why I'm blanking. I have the book right here. Um, super. Uh, I'll think of it. It'll come up. It'll come up later. It's from explain pain, supercharged, you know, the, uh, the graph and everything leads. So if you have more, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, um, dangerous s- safety Sims, he called them super oh, Sims. Dims and Sims. Yeah. yeah, yeah Dims right. and super Sims. Sims. So he was like, mm. Oh, I think Sarah and Sandy were your super Sims at that moment, which is maybe what you needed. Um, maybe, yeah, I don't know. But like you said, it would have been just as valid if, if I was like, I can't do this. It's too stressful. You know? Yeah, yeah it's too dangerous. Um, too dangerous, yeah. Because those were the cues that you were <clears throat> you were getting. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And and just take it, I, I always think it's important in situations like this to take a moment to reflect on the contrast between the resources available to you in that moment, right? Uh, which, okay, Sandy and Sarah, unique you know exceptional yeah. exceptional resources like yeah. indescribably exceptional yeah but even without them take your own resources you know you're informed you're uh you're resourced with intellectual and other capacities and uh understand how things work and biomechanics you've got mm-hmm. incredible resources and then just take a moment to reflect on the contrast between you and most people yeah and is it is it any is it any wonder at all that people face those situations? And yeah, there'd be a lot of people with chronic neck pain, even if they're on a recovery journey, uh, who would get into that situation and their neck pain would flare up. They wouldn't even do the ride. That's right. They'd leave. The neck pain would flare up, and and the rest. Anxiety, and then and then everything that comes after that. Go back to the yeah. doctor. Get a new script. You know, and and we do. We are tempted. Well, there, I think there is a tendency in in our field to to look 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 down on that approach in some way, but uh, you know, as they are, oh, that's uh, that's substandard people. But it's it's totally predictable, and yeah. and an excellent excellent biological organism doing that. And we have to, I reckon, we just always have to remember the resource differential. Yeah. Oh, that's, I never even thought about that, but that is so true. And, you know, it just goes to show you why people living with chronic pain, why the burden of disease is the high, one of the highest in bird. It's the most, one of the most burdensome health conditions and diseases in the world, in most countries. I mean, just low back pain alone, the burden of disease in the United States, I think is third. That's just low back pain. We're not yeah, talking right. about OA and other uh, knee or neck pain, other chronic conditions. Um, it's third. Well, I mean, things might be different now with COVID. I don't know, but um, you know, I think it's, years live with disability. Why. On the years live with disability metric, mm-hmm. uh, chronic pain is way out in front. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I mean, on other metrics, you know, uh, years lost, years lost, um, which includes mortality, then it drops down right. the list a bit. Right, right. Yeah. But you know, it just goes to show all of the things that you that you've been working on in 2021, and that you're excited about coming up, let's say in 2022, and all the incredible researchers and PhD candidates that you get to work with. It just shows how complex and complicated chronic pain is, and that one yeah. or two sessions of pain science education ain't going to cut it for most. No, no, you know? absolutely. And it just shows the complexity of it and how difficult it is from a research standpoint, a clinician standpoint. It is to tackle these problems um, on an individual basis and society as a whole. So, I mean, mm. keep keep doing the keep fighting the good fight, as they say. <laughs> Thanks, Karen. Because but it's I love definitely it. I, necessary. I, you know, I, I'm gobsmacked most weeks that I get to do this for a job and I get paid for it. And- right. Yeah, and yeah, and really speaking resonates. and speaking of helping people around the world, you've got master sessions coming up. So you did this in 2021. So now you're doing it again in 2022. It's going to be May 13th to the 16th. Depends on where you live in the in the world. But do you want to talk yeah. a little bit more about the master sessions? Who's involved and what it's all about? Well, yeah, that, I mean that was that was really cool. So in, in 2021, uh, no one's traveling obviously. And, uh, Neu Group UK, um, put to me this idea of doing something a bit different. Uh, and it was really different. Like, uh, I was so that it, it, we had two broadcasts and they were timed friend, uh, friendly time zones for Europe or for, the Americas, um, and then Australia and Asia sort of could go to one or the other with not quite as friendly. So for one broadcast, I was starting, I think, at 6 a.m. And for another broadcast, I was finishing at about 11 p.m., something like that, um, my time. But it was uh, really well planned, really well resourced, like they um, – I. I'm in a studio, basically. I was in the, it was in the Noi Group uh, offices in Adelaide, uh, but set up like a studio with a producer and sound people and a couple of cameras and uh, Tim Cox working as MC does a beautiful job on that. Uh, and we had a team of people downstairs ferreting around for the papers I was mentioning and all that sort of stuff. And um, it, we, we were, we didn't know how it would go because it was it's not a like it's not like a zoom conference or or course it's really quite different from that there's a fair bit of interaction and um it went it went really well yeah, it was really good fun really well received the, the feedback uh, has been overwhelmingly positive uh i uh, i was joined by two people for 2021 uh Social pressure. Tasha Stanton came to speak, uh, and she so she did a about a thirty minute talk, and then she and I chatted for about forty five minutes, and uh, and then we opened it up to Q and A, and um, and that conversation between Tasha and I, and then the other person who contributed, the other two people were Mark Hutchinson, who's a professor of everything at Adelaide University. One of the, one of the exceptional communicators on neuroimmunology uh, related to pain and defence, personal defence. And um, so the same sort of format with him. And then with David Butler, who everyone knows. If you don't know David, you've 
you're missing a key part of life you should have. Um, and so it was amazing. It was, yeah, it was really well. Lots of comments like, I never thought online education could be like this and that sort of stuff. So that was really positive. So in 2022, in and I think the dates you mentioned are probably the Americas day, so that we're doing two broadcasts again, um, where we, we got feedback that we're responding to, so the schedule's changing slightly. Um, Mark Hutchinson and Tasha are both coming back to do longer stints. Uh, and then we're also uh, having in uh, people with really interesting research and, and great clinical engagement. So, uh, for example, Dr. Jane Chalmers, who's uh, done some excellent work in pelvic pain. Um, so she'll come and she'll do a talk and then we'll, I sort of interview them. Uh, so it's, the master sessions are a massive amount of work for me because I, I need to have my head around everyone else's stuff as well so I can ask meaningful questions. But the, the feedback is, a, is about how useful those conversations are as well. Um, so, yeah, so there's Jane Chalmers, there's Hayley Leake. Uh, Hayley Leake has, has started working with uh, investigating what people who are recovering from pain value in learning about. She published one paper on that in pain, a beautiful paper, I think, um, that I think should shift research direction of a few groups. Uh, Haley uh, also has the uh, probably unique among pain scientists uh, brag point of winning the Australian Survivor 2021. Uh, so she, uh, she survived and part of the reason for her survival, I think, was her deep understanding of, of how pain works. And there was some great episodes where she, there was one where she, I think she was standing on uh, like pokey point things, or poles. They were all doing this with, a, with another thing coming slightly down lower and lower for six hours. Um, and you know, elite athletes, ex-SAS people had already fallen out. And, and so she's, she's actually done a, an incredible job in disseminating modern understanding of pain to the wider community because they've all said, how did you do that? And she's able to talk about her understanding of pain. And pain does not mean damage. Pain is because of lots of things. So no wonder the host is making these comments like that. They're trying to rev up my pain system. So incredible impact. And she's you know, got a high profile among the people who watch on Survivor on telly. Mm -hmm. So she's able to integrate that experience with her research and she's a very interesting person there. So she's, she's coming. Sarah Warwork's doing really interesting work with younger kids, um, looking at how, how we can engage with young kids on everyday pains in a way that will help them be resilient later. Um, so really fascinating work that she's doing. Uh, and then I'm, I'm there as well. So I, I think I'll, I'll cover about half of the time. Um, and it's great fun. Yeah. And, you know, people go and look at the reviews and all that sort of mm -hmm. stuff. But, um, uh, yeah, love people to, to get involved in that. That's in, that's in May. Yeah, yeah. as you said. And is there, uh, you may not know this, but is there like a cutoff date for signups or can you sign up like the day before if you wanted to? I think there's a rate shift. 
Okay. Like a, I think there's an early bird rate. I think okay. I actually don't know much about that sort of stuff. Um, but they they do have to. I mean, the the earlier they get a feel for numbers, the better able to judge. Sure how to do it because it takes a lot of bandwidth and all that sort of stuff. It, oh, I mean, I right, right, right. Yeah, that I makes sense. All, all, the, all that, that behind, all the behind the yeah. scenes production stuff. You're the on-air yeah. talent. You don't have to worry about exactly. <laughs> I don't worry about any of that. But but Noi Group, if they go to Noi Group, they'll learn everything they need to learn about it. Yeah, then. yeah. And, and again, I'll put the links uh, in the show notes here and, and we'll put it out on social media as well so that if people are interested, then I highly suggest signing up because it, it what a great what a great lineup and it's not until may so you have plenty of time to shift your schedule and try and figure out you know kind of block the time off so you can be part of it and one other thing i believe this is true you can correct me if i'm wrong but if you if you're in the americas and you you pay for it and you live in new york city let's say i pay for it i live in new york city i can also watch the other um, I'll also get the recordings of the other um, uh, broadcast. So you get yeah, both. that's correct. So you, you get both and you you don't have to be there live mm-hmm. you know, watching it. But but if you're not, you, you're not engaging in the, the Q&A, Q&A and yeah. all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, but you get access to both broadcasts and you get access to the thing called the Padlet, which is it was an amazing resource from the first one because this is all of the stuff that the team downstairs is getting while the master sessions are on. So let's say uh, Professor Mark Hutchinson mentions this, oh, really exciting new study from so-and-so which showed this, then someone downstairs will get that study, put the paper on the Padlet. Um, So it's, it's an incredible resource as well. And they have access to that. I don't know for how long afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. But you, but you have it. Well, it sounds amazing. And um, I think it's so great that, this is probably something, if not for COVID, maybe you would not have done. And it's made a big impact, right? So, yeah, and, and when COVID's uh, no longer what it is, uh, I'd prefer to do it this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing, amazing. And now I don't want to monopolize any more of your time, but is there anything that we didn't cover that you were like, oh, I really want the listeners to know this? Or, or is there a big takeaway? Oh, I think my takeaway is it's really consistent over years, actually. Uh, whenever I have an opportunity like this to chat with, with such an informed and, and clever interviewer like you, I, I'm always struck by how, how important people like you are for our community because uh, I see my role as sort of knowledge generation and and dissemination in sort of conventional ways, you know, books and articles and things like that. Um, But we need people like you to spread it, you know, to to, to play the critical role in getting it out to the the world in a way that's uh, accurate and engaging. And uh, and it's people like you who put in so much, so much effort for your community and, Whenever I think about a takeaway, I just am reminded of, of uh, the potential benefit we can still bring to humanity by doing this chronic pain thing better. Mm-hmm. And we have made progress. I have no doubt we've made progress. Um, but it feels to me like we're climbing up a really, really tall mountain. 
Uh, and now when we look back, we can see we've actually come quite a long way. But when you look ahead, there's still still a bloody big mountain. Um, so all of these things are good. Have hope. I, I think there's genuine, realistic, scientifically based reason to hope things will keep improving for people with chronic pain. That will, will, people will have better outcomes. Um, so that's my take home. But can I give a plug to a, yes. to, uh, a book that I'm an author on? Yes. So it's a self plug, but I'm not the main author. So Dan Harvey, a truly innovative scientist, and I don't say that lightly. Um, there's not many innovators out there, but Dan Harvey is an innovator. And he's the first author on a book called Pain and Perception. And in the Americas, you can get that through OPTP. Uh, elsewhere, you can get it through Noi Group. Um, and it's a, I think it's a beautiful book. It's all about understanding through illusions uh, and sensorial experiences more about how pain works. Uh, sort of like a coffee table book, waiting mm -hmm. area book. Um, the feedback on that's been fantastic. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to be involved with Dan. And I'll just mention another book that's available in, in North America, but not in Australia, uh, and it's called Epiphany. Uh, and Tash Stanton has joined Dave Butler and I to, to write a consumer-focused book around knee osteoarthritis. And um, and I will say, I, I, when I first saw it, because epiphany, it's not how you would normally spell epiphany. Um, it's, it's, it's an, what do they call it? Uh, it's an acronym. An acronym. Yes. So it's explaining pain to increase physical activity in knee osteoarthritis. Correct. Roughly, yes. and it's, right? spelled, it, it's spelled E-P-I-P-H-A, knee. Right. K-N-W. Yeah, very yeah. clever. Because I was like, epiphany? What did I say? Ep epiphany? I don't even know what epiphany. I said. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Is this, what's epiphany? And you're like, epiphany. I'm like, oh, yeah, well, that definitely makes more sense. <laughs> that definitely makes more sense. But yes, mm. um, and we'll have, we'll have links to all of this stuff uh, again in the show notes. And, you know, one last question in talking about you know, all of the work that you do that, and it is an Im very important work and it can impact not one or two people, but millions of people living with chronic pain. So do you, as a researcher, how do you deal with maybe feelings of overwhelm with the responsibility that that places on your shoulders? Or do you think about that at all? Or am I just projecting what I would feel if I were in your position? <laughs> uh, I think you're projecting. Okay. I don't, <laughs> I don't feel overwhelmed in the slightest. Mm. Uh, I don't feel any sense of a responsibility to humanity that's, that's changed because of what I do. Uh, I feel, I feel that I have a responsibility. Yeah. I don't know if I feel I have responsibility. I, I want to use my resources and my knowledge and my skills and my connections and my relationships to, to be the best Lorimer I can be, if that makes any sense, mm -hmm. and, and the values by which I judge that uh, are not at all on chronic pain outcomes. Um, I'm a very um, sort of process-driven person. I, I want to make sure that today I did the best thing I could do uh, and I don't have any illusion that uh, I, 
I could use outcomes as a marker of, of how well I've lived my life mm. because I just think there's too much noise for, for me to have a measurable signal in the world. So uh, I want to make sure that in this moment I'm being authentic and true and um, real and, and today I'm doing my very best. I do my very best. Uh, but I do that because I like myself more when I'm doing my very best. Uh, and I don't, I don't feel any burden to humanity. Uh, that's different from the burden that I think anyone who grew up in my in my world and life with my skill set and my influences would have. Yeah, and I think that's great universal advice for for anyone. And you know, normally when we uh, finish the show. I always ask people, what advice would you give to your younger self? So I don't know if any piece of what you said would be maybe part of that advice, but is there anything else that maybe you would give to a young, a young Lorm or fresh out of university for first time university, not subsequent <laughs> university? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that I would, I think there would be advice, but I don't think it would be remotely relevant to my work. I think it would be uh, love and be loved, look for that and, and express and, uh, and value that with the entire depth and breadth of your being. And for me, that includes being a neuroscientist and pain dude with an extraordinary fortune of being able to do the things I enjoy doing for work and resonate with my values and all that sort of stuff. And um, ultimately, I think we're such a sophisticated organism that that we may one one we may one day discover that it's all just to love and be loved. Don't know. I don't know. Great advice. Great <laughs> advice. Thank you so Sorry, much. I feel like I'm so not a sage. But no, no, it's amazing advice. <laughs> I, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking the time out uh, to come on and talk about all the stuff you have going on. And um, is there a place where people can find you uh, if, I don't know, they have questions, a website, something like that? Yeah, so uh, finding, I mean, I've got a homepage at the University of South Australia that they can find out about Perfect. me. Perfect. Uh, Pain Revolution is doing some good stuff, find out about what we're doing there. Um, I, I get a lot of emails and uh, I just can't possibly respond to them Listen, all. Listen, we're, we're, we're um, not here to give out so. your, your emails and, or your personal phone number <laughs> or anything, but I think painrevolution.org and, and the University of South Australia are great ways for people to find out a little bit more about you because, as we said, before we get on the air, you are not on social media, um, so there Correct. is no Twitter handles or Instagram or TikToks. None of that stuff. None of that. No. None of that. So people can find you again, uh, painrevolution.org or University of South Australia's website, or you can just do a Google, go to ResearchGate, read all your papers. There's plenty of ways to find uh, out more about your research and, uh, and what you have coming up. So plenty of ways cool. for people to do that. So th again, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much for having me. You're a legend. Keep it up. Uh, we'll thank, thank you. Thank you so much. And everyone, okay. uh, have a great couple of days and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. Thank you for listening. And please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.